0: Hello, and welcome to the Heartwind Building Sustainability Podcast. Uh, this is episode number six, six, I think.
1: We can count to high numbers.
0: Uh, yeah, episode number six. So this podcast is uh, chats with people who are doing sustainability in the built environment. Uh, so sort of dreamers, doers, uh, designers. Makers, yeah. This month's podcast is with Noel Isherwood, and Noel is a uh, an architect, and we talk mostly in this, or largely in this podcast, uh, about his time when he was working um, at Poundbury. He was a, a spokesperson, I think, uh, for Poundbury. Um, do you know about Poundbury?
1: Yeah, I, well, uh, only only little bits and pieces, but... Uh yeah, really interesting. I've never actually had a chance to visit, but um as far as I know, Pambury is a uh a recent addition to uh, Dorchester. Mm. Um and uh a was Planned uh,
0: expansion.
1: Yeah. So it was one of the one of the many towns in the UK that needed to grow and uh as most towns do, they they can grow uh quite unsustainably. Uh they just kind of keep bulging out of the sides (laughs) and adding more and more stuff. Yeah. That's not very people focused and good old Prince Charles, your old mate. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Had a different idea.
0: Yeah. Uh, Do we need to talk about how he's my mate? Probably should introduce that. Okay. So, uh, (laughs) so one of the, one of, he's probably the top person on my list. When I wrote a list of people I wanted to interview, yeah. prince charles was at the top and why was that uh, well um he's kind of interesting i mean he's very interesting i guess I'm, I'm not in any way a royalist or i don't don't think i'm anti them but i, I don't
1: yeah I, I just, it's not we're not approaching it from a, a kind of sycophantic a royal worship no. situation it's very much his deeds and actions that have brought him to our attention isn't it yeah
0: so he um he's been chatting about sort of community and organic food The the dutchy farm has been growing organic food for years and you know people wrote him off as a a lunatic and you know he's a (laughs) he's just lost his mind and then that's sort of 30 odd years ago and now suddenly everyone's caught up and gone like oh actually these things are bad yeah so i mean i guess it's because he uh probably has a lot of time to think
1: yeah. Pretty healthy, disposable income, doesn't it? Yeah. Either. Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah. <laughs> he is uh, one of the biggest landowners, I guess. So yeah. He's sort of fairly connected. But um, yeah, so he's had all these uh, what were deemed wacky ideas. And then he sort of stuck with them and not let anyone tell him no. And then, um, yeah, years later, we're kind of agreeing. Yeah. Um, but he set up a thing called the Prince's Foundation uh which is all about heritage skills not letting heritage skills die uh and kind of aiming to develop people's uh craft skills from sort of you know being good up to a sort of master craftsman sort of s- standard yeah and that is a program that i went on 2015 maybe um and i was there first and i believe only ever earth builder that went oh really went on there uh they didn't really know what to do with me i don't think <laughs>
1: um stones are in the earth do, yeah
0: do stones that's exactly what they said
1: actually <laughs> trees grow out of the earth <laughs> do trees
0: <laughs> um yeah and so they offer this is uh eight month program where as a, as a craftsperson, you go along and you work with these incredible people. You work on a project, or I worked on a project up at Dumfries House, building a, a heritage ducat, uh, which is the Scottish word for a dovecote. Huh. Uh, so it was all reclaimed stone, lime lime mortars, beautiful timber framing. Uh, I designed a really smashing floor.
1: did, I saw it. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, so I'm I'm you know from from that point of view I'm a big fan. Um,
1: yeah, and it's a kind of natural bedfellow for the stuff that we're doing through Heartwind, and in that we're very keen on the kind of the heritage skills and crafts. We think that you know sustainable design is rooted in traditional vernacular heritage construction. Yeah, and uh, what he's doing both with the Prince's Foundation and and with things like Poundbury was uh, acknowledging that fact and trying to bring it into kind of a modern design language and apply it to apply it to various different areas. I think it's he's pretty visionary, even if he's got a little bit of an odd character.
0: Is he an odd character?
1: I think so. I think people I think that people haven't taken him seriously and I think it's potentially because of the royalness.
0: Um so, so yes, this uh, this conversation uh, focuses mostly. It almost it was kind of drawn back at many points to Poundbury uh, <laughs> and Noel's time uh, there. Yeah, but what we haven't spoken about uh, is where we're at. Yeah, like the Heartwind build, summer two thousand nineteen build is. Were we a month in.
1: Yeah, we've caught the way through end of
0: this end of this week. will be a month in.
1: Yep, storming through It's going amazingly. Yeah. It's really, really turning into something now.
0: Yeah. So in the last, well, today we put up all of the roof trusses. Yep. Got um, some of the ridge boards in. Tomorrow it's going to be rafters. Uh, and our team of, of students is um, is working incredibly well. So to, just to backtrack a little bit, we run a build every summer. Yep. And we take on a team of 10 students um, and they are with us learning all the skills from the foundations right through to the the finishes. And yeah, at the moment they're learning timber framing, so a kind of combination of conventional stick framing, so using dimension timbers, we've got a bit of oak framing and we've got some roundwood timber framing in there as well.
1: Yeah, and beautiful chestnut. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's going well, so they've completed all of the uh all of lovely reclaimed bricks with their lime mortar, which they did a fantastic job on. I think I've seen uh uh some of the best uh, walls going up than the, much better than a lot of the walls I've seen on you know con- conventional building sites so we were really proud of uh, the quality of work they've been putting in mm. and then to see the timber frame spring out of the ground so quickly and accurately it's uh yeah it's fantastic it's it's a real thing it really is yeah and um, so yeah in the in the
0: coming weeks we've got a uh a metal steel roof yep uh going on and then straw bales come in, and they they become our insulation and our wall system. Yeah, yeah,
1: we've got a load of foam glass coming in for the floors, and we get to do our subfloor, rammed earth subfloor.
0: Yeah, yeah. So rammed earth floor, and then uh, clay plasters, lime plasters, lime renders, I should say.
1: Yeah lots going on Team is doing a fantastic job and they've really gelled together well as a little weird family, which is what we always love to see. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, it's great. So I think that's enough uh, chat from us. Um, We will
0: check in back at the end just with a bit more stuff.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
0: So, uh, Noel, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
3: Yes, you're welcome.
0: Um, yes, we are, well, we're in the, oh, I keep wanting to call it the sustainability center, but it's the environmental center in yeah, Swansea. Swansea's
3: Environment Center.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. And what what is that exactly?
3: Well, it was set up over 20 years ago, and it was designed to really educate people into the new thinking behind sustainable Uh, issues that were only then just sort of emerging as like quite important things that we need to get to grips with. And so it was done as just a sort of focal point for people in Swansea to come and understand a little bit what what is climate change and um, what is renewable energy. I mean, it Mm. was really basic in that way, you know. Uh,
0: So when was it set up?
3: Um, Well, I I don't know exactly the date, but... um, In what sort of year? It must have been about in the sort of... um, uh, probably early nineties, I would say. Okay, something like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but um, if, you, if you go to the entrance, you'll see a picture of Prince Charles actually opening the. Uh, oh, right. Opening the center, which when he was quite young, you know, looks, <laughs> yeah. looks quite fresh and uh, you know, uh, and everything. And uh, so, so there, there is this always this link with sustainability and, and, the, and the royal family. However, it happens, it mm. comes with with him in particular, and. Uh, so so uh, and, and as the Prince of Wales I suppose he was uh, he was establishing his, his his you know his position in in Wales at that time yeah um so 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 Swansea's always had this kind of uh, there's a side to it this is very about activism and trying to do things differently, and there's always been like hippie communities sort of right. along the Gower and people okay, living yeah, yeah. very differently and um shocking people from time to time. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and at the same time there's a very sort of conservative center and sort of politics that happens in most provincial towns as well going on at the same time so there's sometimes a little bit of a you know conflict between the two and a and, and misunderstanding or non-communication or yes. whatever. You
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> nice and then um has this place uh yeah you know, i've i've seen out outside that there's a well there's a whole sort of raft of different people working here and there's a, a cafe and lots of information and, and stuff like that. Yes, yes,
3: well, they're also, they also they like doing campaigns. So at the moment, there's a campaign, a plastic-free campaign for Swansea to try mm. and get people aware of the amount of wrapping and plastic and uh, cling film that's just sort of being produced on a massive scale through mm. all the main supermarkets. And while there are there, there are some attempts to try and change that, it's still still an issue. So the actual centre here, with their little cafe and a little shop that they've developed, is, is selling non plastic wrapped products so you can you can buy pulses and lentils and rice mm. and brown rice and stuff all in paper bags and it's a sort of it's it's a small way of trying to get people engaged with that whole concept and and renewable or or, or more ecological washing powders mm. washing liquids that you can actually come and fill up your your liquid container here without having to keep buying new plastic ones
0: it's um yeah it's the way I mean, I lived in uh, North America for, for a long time and the, mm. the bulk buy bins were just the sort of standard way of, of shopping. Um, so it's it's really sort of surprising to me that uh, we've taken so long to... Like, that's a new and novel idea.
3: It has taken us quite a long time to catch up, you know. That's why I, I guess people who were talking about it 20 or 20 more years ago were seen as, like, really out there and a bit weird and activist and mm. uh, and and... and, and that hasn't completely gone away I mean it's still unfortunately you're, you're, you're a bit of an outside voice when you're talking about these things which very much so yeah um, and, and obviously the work that you're doing is, is taking building you know in that same direction trying to look at natural materials and as an architect, with my practice here at the environment center um, uh, it 's useful for me to be here because I get to speak to people who have those general interests mm. to move things and obviously you can 't always move it one hundred percent in the direction that you would ideally like it to be, but if you can make percentage uh, improvements on every project you do and the thinking of every client, then you are you are you know making, making some changes
0: Yes, I find it quite difficult when i 'm like that we're in this this bubble of, you know, I'm talking to you and you've got an understanding of what I'm talking about with natural materials and, you know, mm-hmm. the people I teach and, you know, the sort of circles I move in, it's not a in any way a, like a new idea or a, a an extreme idea. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'll meet someone at a wedding or something and <laughs> they'll just go, what? What? <laughs> you can't do that. What are you talking about? And it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a completely <laughs> alien idea. Yeah, it's a funny... Uh, <laughs> funny yeah. thing to be a, a sort of quite yeah. a niche yeah. Um, yeah but yeah hopefully if we keep going then it won't be niche and it'll just be yeah. yeah we won't
3: call it natural building we'll call it building and that'll be yeah that will be the mainstream by then isn't it yeah yeah that's the hope <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's it requires a lot of campaigning and it, it, the environment center draws together quite a lot of sustainable organizations like low carbon swansea bay being yeah. one of them and um Renew Wales has had the center has had its base here as well, does have, have its base here. And they're involved in sort of getting alongside different organisations and groups who are thinking that they want to do some changes and maybe they should be doing it in a more green and friendly environmentally friendly way. So they can bring mentors, you know, through Welsh government funding mm. or lottery funding, I think, into into, into play and ha- enable conversations to happen within sort of community groups or church committees or whoever's involved uh, to help them just to think in a different way about it and then implement some ideas through getting a a renewable energy expert as a mentor for a couple of days to sort of help shape the thinking on how we're going to deal with um, the heat, the the massive heat loss in in certain types of community buildings. Yeah, Um, And then somebody else will pop up and say, well, we can do growing in the, in, in this, plot of land next to the buildings and we can uh, start becoming a more resilient community by by you know, self-sustaining ourselves. Mm. Uh, but it does take everybody, it, you know, because these things are so different. It's a little bit like, a, I, I guess, something like an allotment concept where you, you can't really do it all on your own. You have to have a team of people who are working together either in volunteer ways to 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 to, to make progress mm. so in that sense it's, it's it's good because it brings this community together which often we've, we've become a uh, you know societies become very individualistic in the way we do things and yes. we, you know you you get out of your house, walk down the end of your garden, get into the car, and that's about as much as if you happen to see <laughs> your neighbour if he happens to be doing the same thing at the same time, which is like almost never. Yeah. So, so community has been lost in a, in a real sense. You know, we could be we have become like a virtual sort of yeah. so called community on, online Definitely. all the time, and and yet yeah, we're not really interacting. And I think that's why loneliness and all kinds of other problems with poverty and this, that, and the other come more extreme because people don't know who to, how to rely on other people.
0: Yeah, and I think the the quality of the interaction has changed quite a lot because you're no longer looking someone in the eye when you're talking to them. You can be quite rude and uh, you're not really mm. well. You can misread things. You can deliberately misread things. You can not you yeah. know, care or not even realise that there's a person on the other end. Yeah. And so, yeah. So yeah, actual real. You know, meeting someone while you're trimming the hedge or whatever—it's yeah. a, it's yeah. a, a, a genuine interaction.
3: Yeah, that's right. And a community-based things will bring bring people together from all walks of life. Mm. So that's the beauty of it as well. You get solicitors and plumbers and electricians and barristers, and you know they all mix up together because they all kind of need each other in a way. Yes. In terms of a small eco community, and if you have to build in sort of long transportation commutes. For certain groups of people, because they can't afford to build, live in a certain place, or or you just you just segregate people by the way you build the development, so mm. and nobody else can get in. You know, it's, it's 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 not it's not a good way. No, to develop. <laughs>
0: I was reading a thing uh, a couple of
3: years ago, which was
0: it was a report into how people in the city are going to work out in the country and the people who are buying the houses in the country are going to work in the city. And so you've got neither Wait, well, Sorry. It starts the other way around. So it's you know, people in the city get rich. They buy their, their country houses. And then you know, that takes away the houses from all the people living in the, the country. So they move to the city cause it's cheaper, but are commuting back. And so you've got this sort of crisscross of where people are living and where people are working, not being in the same spot, uh, yeah, no one's no one's getting any any kind of benefit from
3: it. Well, that's quite, that's that's the result of having a you know extended suburbia going on forever, which has usually got no mixed uses in it. So mm. there's no centres, there's no places to buy things easily. So you have to then drive into the town centre, and it becomes a, a commuting sort of scenario. And um, in America, the sprawl concept is, mm. is so widespread and massive that. When the same The same principle applies people uh, what what they say is they you have to, to in, in order to qualify for a mortgage, you drive till you qualify you know you drive right. out of the town center <laughs> till, you, till you get to the affordable zone that's that's right for you you know so it, and that can be a long way in america because yeah. everything is so low density so you can have a couple of hours drive in in the morning and at night, and of course you're living in a quite a poor area, but your 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 travel bills are going quite high anyway mm. so it's a kind of bit of a distorted economics. You know, the amount of money you have left for your your house and your home yeah. gets more, smaller and smaller.
0: <laughs> so you have to go further and further. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, speaking of community developments, you've been involved with uh, Poundbury,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> which is a thing. Uh, I yeah, I've only really become aware of in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm um on the, the princess foundation we talked about it quite a lot um obviously they're very very proud of what they've done um so what was your involvement with that
3: uh, well my role was as the um princess foundation uh, representative for for for, for poundbury mm-hmm. so I, I my job was to take people to poundbury and explain the principles that were behind the development from the beginning and how they've developed over time, and what the future kind of looks like for the completed pro- project. And uh, it was a fascinating three years for me, really, because <laughs> having come out from a sort of more, I guess, I guess mainstream architectural education and, and background. Then, um, uh, although for a while I had, I've always thought about urban, urban issues as, yeah. as, as in the background to my architectural practice. And, uh, but there it became suddenly the main thing. So I was looking at how you structure settlements for all kinds of things, you know, like how to make uh, active, sustainable communities that, that, that are going to be sustainable in the long term and be self-sufficient in the long term. Mm-hmm. And so I think that <clears throat> Poundbury was really setting that kind of model in place, and, and to some degree had the luxury of having a, an enlightened landowner right. <laughs>
0: yes. who could
3: take long-term decisions and say, well, I don't care what the market, uh, mass house building community are telling me or the, um, the funding people or the uh, real estate properties, whatever it is, whatever industry or the architects, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to do it in a different way. <clears throat> and so that's what's happened.
0: Hmm. And how is it different from? Well, for a start, it's it's an expan- expansion of Winchester. Have I got that right? Uh, no, Dorchester. Dorchester. Yes, the other Chester. Yes. Well, it was, <laughs> other, was, a, was Chester. a Roman town, so
3: you got the you got right. the origins right. <laughs> yes, yes.
0: <laughs> um, so it's an expansion of Dorchester. Um, how how big? How many?
3: It was about four hundred and fifty acres, and it was sort of one of three locations around Dorset. That could take the expansion needed for for the county. Right. Uh, when the three areas were assessed in just general planning terms, um, uh, Dorchester came up as as as, as, a, as probably the, the best in terms of sustainability because the other two were in danger of being a bit more remote right. from other existing settlements, which would put them into the category of uh, the then fashionable term eco eco towns or eco cities or eco mm-hmm. settlements, but Because they weren't connected, they weren't as eco as they could make themselves out to be. Yeah. But uh, to extend an existing settlement and to create more walkable neighbours, neighborhoods that are connected to an existing settlement with all its infrastructure, like railways and buses and other things, you know, obviously it ticks a lot more boxes even before you start building. Yeah. And there was a ring road, as is common in a lot of uh, English towns, that went round. And uh, quite a lot of the farmland of the Duchy at that time was within the, the, on the town side of the Ring Road. Right. So it was sort of wedged in in a way that wasn't making it sort of ideal for the farming community to farm properly because you, you're sort of fenced in in, in mm. some ways. So <clears throat> it became kind of, um, you, know, a, a, a log- you know, a logical place to build. And um, uh, the Prince of Wales then decided, having seen quite a lot of Duchy, um, Developments over the previous 100 years mm-hmm. or 50 years in particular, he decided that he didn't want to do it the same way that they'd always done it, which was largely, more more recent times, on a fairly suburban right. model. So he had already got thoughts that were very based in traditional architecture and natural materials and classical forms and things that were easily... Reproduced and built over over decades, over, over centuries by mm. ordinary people and ordinary builders who, uh, who didn't have to have a PhD in some sort of scientific uh, building uh, technology in order to do to build the building. So uh, there's a lot of sense in that, and um, uh, but. Uh, There wasn't many people around who would know how to deliver that because the architectural profession are always literally uh, following in the line of Le Corbusier and everything that came out of modernism from the early part of the 20th century. And, And whilst it's been tweaked here and there, the principle is largely the same. It's a very uh, it, it, it was always talked of as form follows function right, but in in in, in, in um in many ways it became a stylistic thing mm. as much as any other form of architecture, so modernism has a kind of style and and people will often argue and argue for that modernism based on stylistic principles and very little about anything else
0: so you're hang on, you're saying that it's form follows function, so function is primary in the modern.
3: Uh, in the modern in the modern modern architecture, yeah, form uh, follows function. So, so the idea was that you you you, however you wanted to live your life and what kind of spaces you want to occupy, mm. was so prime and important that what the end what the end envelope of the building turned out to be wasn't important. It just right. it was just sort of the end result of all these logical steps that you'd taken. Uh-huh. But um, with the skills of people like Le Corbusier and others who were quite artistic and kind of quite, quite good at sort of organising visual things, there was mm. a certain kind of cachet to the style and the look of the thing as well. Yeah. And and over time, uh, you know, there was quite a lot of social ideas attached to early modernism as well, which were good. But as time went on, it often sort of got a little bit of an excuse to build cheaply and we don't need to put pitch roofs on, we don't need to do this, mm. we do it all. And... Um, the weathering characteristics of modern architecture as we have, they have been developed over time are not great in the Northern Hemisphere. If you've got something in Greece or in some other place with flat roofs and no projecting cornices here and there, mm. it, it, somehow the rain and the, the weather doesn't affect the, the building in a terrible way. But if you're in the n- Northern Europe, yeah. you get streaks and staining and building failures and leaks and all kinds of stuff. If you don't build it you know, in a proper way, so... Mm. So, so, so uh, anyway, uh, so in looking for someone to deal with Poundbury, uh, the Prince of Wales came up with uh, Leon Creer, or he was advised that this, this would be a man who could understand European traditions and history and uh, settlement patterns and would be able to um, develop a master plan that would have a linking with the original sort of characteristics of a um, sustainable, walkable neighbourhood, which was the original Roman settlement.
0: Right, okay. And that walkable settlements are really i mean that's one of the the key things that that i was interested in when i, I first heard about it because it's the, i mean the streets don't have uh you know a curbed pavement do they they and there's there's lots of indicators as to why you should drive slowly but without ever telling you that you should drive slowly and you should you know there should be a segregation between
3: Exactly, yes. Well, Poundbury sort of adopted a kind of an organic approach to town planning so that streets didn't go like on elongated, long sort of beaux avenues forever. Mm. So you could really build up a bit of speed while you're driving <laughs> yes. down there, you know, and then sort of go around some enormously curved bit at the end. To, uh, to, so you could stay driving at 50, 50 miles an hour. It, it, it decided that the sort of almost like the medieval street pattern was mm. much more based on, originally on how people walked. So by having junctions that are terminated by another building or another street frontage means you have to stop and make a decision whether to go left or right. Um, And you take away a lot of the signage. You take away traffic lights. You take away 20, 30, 40-mile-an-hour signage. And you're throwing the responsibility back onto the driver of coming into your town to make his own decisions, how fast he drives, Mm. and work it out. What's the safe thing to do? And because there is a lot more uncertainty for him in that process, he will automatically slow down because he might be thinking, "Well, a, a child could run out or something on the on on the street," and and so it does have this. It's, it's sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? Mm. You sort of think, "Well." The more signage, like 20 miles an hour, the, more, the slower and safer we'll be. Yeah. But <clears throat> ironically, it doesn't do that. You put something at, say, 30 miles an hour, and somebody thinks, oh, I can just drive 30 miles an yeah. hour regardless of what the actual conditions mm. are like. So you're creating possibly more dangerous dangerous environment for people to walk. So, so Poundbury sort of pioneered this concept quite considerably, and certainly in recent times, of um, sharing surfaces. mm it's quite a trendy term now, you know, shared surfaces in, in cities and towns. But at the time, there wasn't really any sort of um, legislational books that you could say, well, this is how to do it. So, yeah. Leon Korea, I guess, because of his great knowledge of places and in, in, in European towns and cities, we're very similar to a lot of early Anglo Saxon settlements on which many of our towns are based as well. Uh he, he, he said, Well let's just look and see what happens in other places. You know, if it yeah. works there it can work here. And <clears throat> trying to argue that with the sort of road engineers and, and you know, and, and council <laughs> planners is not is not that um easy to do. Yeah. <clears throat> so he had a very persuasive and a strong sort of uh role at the, at the early early stages trying to put across this new vision.
0: Yeah. And then has it, uh, well, <clears throat> I've tried to describe this to, to various other people, this way of you know, slowing traffic and you know, making people more aware. And I think generally the response is, well, that sounds really dangerous. Uh, you know, there's very little respect for the drivers. <clears throat> you know, if they're not told what to do, they won't do it. Um, I assume by the way you're talking about it, that it's, yeah you know, no there's been no fatalities or you know people being knocked down by speeding cars hasn't happened
2: we'll be back after a quick break
0: hey there I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat show that's right and I'm Pat looking for a podcast that's like catching up with the old friends well you're in luck we're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary discuss culture and politics and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews but it's not just about us we're a community our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts.
3: No, well, the last time I heard Simon Cornaby, the uh, development director for Panbury, uh, talking about this, uh, there had been no, no, no mishaps at all. That's fantastic. Which, um, <clears throat> which is surprising because. The number of people that do get knocked down by cars is is, is quite a quite a quite a number. I mean, in the mm. states, it's quite a, a, you know a large number, which is really worrying. But, um, so so yes, it is it it, it is a fact. But it, it, it does take a lot of careful design, and and the, the master plan of of Poundry is a very sophisticated uh, piece of work, and every corner and every Uh, sort of junction is really thought about, not just in terms of a flat plan of how the roadway intersects, but how the buildings Mm. visually present themselves at the corner. So as you're coming down, you won't see straight through. You will get a building jutting out with a window facing you. And it's sort of it's it's kind of a little bit more natural surveillance is going on. People are kind of looking out for each other. What's going on? Yeah. And you're driving into somebody else's territory. If you're on a sort of motorway, you never know, you feel that the the road is yours, and you yes, can yeah. put your foot down. But if you change different, you know, think make things different, and plant trees in certain places. There's even a lane in Poundry. They brought lanes back into Poundry, into the into, into the dictionary of uh, you know town planning again, which right. had been lost for like a century probably. How do you mean lanes? Well, a lane is a little oh, as connecting, in like an A little a little lane is a connecting route through yeah. a, through a town or a village, which uh, is often very nice and mo- mostly just the locals know about it, and and it, it creates this subsect of uh, of walkability mm. that uh, gives richness and interest to to a place. Nice. So you get hedges, you get streams, you get trees, and there is a, there is a lane in in Pambly with a tree right in the middle of the lane. Right. So you you literally can't drive down it. You can walk or cycle down it. Yeah. Uh, but little things like that, and they're all subtle, but they because they're built in carefully, they uh, make a massive difference.
0: Fantastic. I I did notice I was <laughs> at a um, just a very regular housing development uh, mm-hmm. just a little while ago, um, and I noticed that. Yeah, there were no pavements and there was, yeah, they'd obviously taken that idea and, and mm. I don't, well, I don't know if they were directly influenced mm. by Poundbury, but uh no pavements, there, any intersections were, were sort of, they weren't marked out like a, mm. you know, uh, like a roundabout or a four-way stop. That's very American. <laughs> um Yeah, it was just kind of left, left for your own Yes.
3: You well, a- after, after Poundbury and uh, you know, one or two other things that the foundation were involved in, there was a gradual build-up of knowledge of this kind of way of doing things. And uh, mm. some of that information got handed down or passed on to the, the um, government who was developing uh, design guidance for new new towns and places. And mm. so they, they replaced DB32, which was an old uh, highways design document, which had all these like big... Circumf- uh, you know sort of arcs of how how you would drive around a sort of uh, road and, right. and and three point turns and everything was based around the way the car worked yeah um so that started to get superseded by something called manual for streets mm-hmm. and so manual for streets took many of the principles that came out of Poundbury and, and, and other projects like that and and so, embedded it now into 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 design guidance for everybody. So, mm. so the influence of Poundbury is quite considerable. People don't always acknowledge it, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely the the fountain of many many uh, relearned ideas yeah. that yeah. have been there in the past but have been lost and uh, because of car, car domination, really. Mm.
0: And that's a that's a sort of fascinating point. And yeah, so one of the sort of founding principles of this podcast is about how we use techniques from the past you know with modern thinking to to go forward so Mm -hmm. certainly in Heartwind we use a lot of lime plaster a lot of uh, you know lath and plaster sort of heritage techniques that you know they're, they're based in in sort of knowledge of of materials and you know we know that they're they last and and so that's what we're using to drive our our sort of view on sustainability. It's sort of proven track record uh materials and techniques, so it's really interesting that that's you know the same the same mindset for mm. for this
3: development absolutely and um <clears throat> longevity is a very key part of sustainability mm. and uh a, a lot of products and things that now inform or are built into the built environment um Building, So a very short, short length of, you know, a warranty might be 25 years if you're lucky or something like this. And the amount of failure that can happen or de- degrading of um, fossil fuel based materials and mm. synthetic materials is quite significant. And the way that some of the the insulation uh, boards have been used o- over time has created uh, condensation within the, stru- the the structures of existing buildings. Yeah, uh, because of the way it doesn't allow airflow and it traps moisture in the buildings. So there's quite a lot of rethinking at the moment on, on from the mainstream uh, insulation industry, how mm. you do that. Because a lot of people have been uh, insulating from the inside. Yeah. And this has been causing lots of problems and lots of claims have been coming out as a result of this. And it, it really goes back to the idea that we should be building it with breathable materials and, and, and breathing, you know, uh, allowing the, the whole structure to breathe mm. and become like a sort of combined piece of thermal mass that heats and cools at a certain, um, much more slowly than when you have very thin yeah. materials that, that heat up and then have to be cooled down. And then you're relying on air conditioning and such like to, to, to mitigate these extremes. Mm. So you start relying much more on technology in, in that, in that, that, that uh, sense. I think, uh,
0: well, <clears throat> breathable is sort of the, the term that's often used, but I think it's some, somehow quite misleading uh, I think what we're really talking about is moisture permeable, isn't it? It's not because I think breathable gives the the feeling like it's uh, you know full of holes, like you know, you could breathe, oh, yes. breathe through it. Yes. Um, and I actually just got a, a specification from a, an architect the other day that said, you know, because the buildings are breathable, it means that the air can flow through them. And it's like, well, it's not the air that flows through them. It's yeah, you know, it's the moisture. If the air flows yeah. through. Flow, flowed through them then yeah. you'd have drafts and you know it wouldn't be a yes an effective
3: yes um, i mean obviously uh, like like uh, aerated clay block mm. is quite full of uh, um air you know it's, it's a lot of clay but it's a lot of air yeah um so it is it is about the moisture penetration allowing the moisture to come <clears throat> in and to go out and not to be trapped yeah and uh, it, allow, allowing that to that free freedom of movement, but it does obviously affect the internal air quality quite significantly mm. because then you don't get that musty horrible dank feeling when air can't uh, can't when a place can't, can't breathe properly yes
0: yeah i think i think what had uh, happened with this uh the architect who who' specified this thing
3: i think they'd confused
0: ventilation and breathability uh, as kind yeah. of the same thing yeah, yeah. um so by specifying a breathable <laughs> material they <laughs> yeah
3: mm. yes it's quite complex depending on you yes. know, if you're dealing with existing buildings or dealing with new if you're dealing with new it's quite easy it's much easier to from a first principle set out the breathable principles of mm. the whole structure but often in existing buildings you might get sort of timber boarding over the rafters yeah which might have been treated in some way sort of thereby making them quite impermeable yeah so if you then put insulation up to the underside of that and fill up the, the gap in between all the joists, you're going to find you're going to get also interstitial condensation, even even with a natural product. Yeah. So you still have to be careful to incorporate uh, ventilation in those circumstances, like a, a slot of ventilation, so that it can come in at the eaves and it can it can ex- exit at the, uh, the the top of the building somehow. Yeah. Because traditionally, I guess a lot of old buildings just did not have insulation. Not they they were thatched. They they had just huge fires, mm. and um, they wore a lot of clothes. Yeah, but uh, of course, people—you know—the thatch is is the exception to that, isn't it? They they thought, well, let's let's. Have insulation rather than really wow. think on the roof. Did
0: they think that, or did they think we've got <laughs> loads of straw left over? Let's bug it on the roof, and, <laughs> and then they yeah. thought, "Oh, it's nice and warm yeah. in here." Yeah. Yeah. What a yeah. happy coincidence! Yes,
3: <laughs> it, it, often things happen like that. You know, mm. I think even Poundbury started off as being something that would be quite a nice classical, you know, nice look architecturally. Mm. But actually, it turned out in many ways to be cool. a, an exercise in sustainability uh, in quite, yeah. quite an extreme way. Were the the houses built of the the aerated clay uh, block in Poundbury? Some, uh, no, I think there are some. There are some uh, aerated clay block and there are some other forms of timber framing and insulation. Mm. Um, But I think in the early days when Poundbury was first built, no one really knew about all these new technologies or hadn't really developed them very yeah. well like natural building technologies have really pioneered um uh wood fiber oh, right, insulation. Yeah. and it's been used in germany and switzerland for quite a long time and so it's, mm. it's, it's kind of mainstream here but it's all still new here so trying to get it through the standard forms of uh, construction management and uh, building regulations It takes quite an effort. But I think that is changing. Passive house standards have sort of tended to question a lot of things as well. Yeah. And the Code for Sustainable Homes for a while had quite a a stream of projects that were pushing the agenda in lots of different ways and uh, learning at the same time. So Mm. it's kind of different now. So I think the houses that are building now are probably much more sustainable in terms of the actual building fabric than they might have been, you know, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. I I had, well, just outside my studio in Bristol, there's a, a little, I think they're student houses going up. And well, first of all, the speed at which they went up was phenomenal. They're all timber framed. But then I noticed that, uh, you yeah, know, they're all wrapped <coughs> and taped and, you know, infill mm. uh, insulation. And it's made me sort of question, I, it's always been a question in my mind, but the the tapes like you were talking about earlier about the sort of warranties and you know how long the product's going to last like how long is that tape going to last and as soon as that tape degrades you've just got a you know a a massive air gap uh and then you've got very short-lived housing that's you know going to be useless very very quickly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah i didn't have an actual question from that
3: (laughs) no it's true it's true you can do things more or less say sustainably but still Mm. rely on certain technologies that hold Mm. it all together you know like like air tightness for instance you know taping up all the joints and potential gaps and everywhere Mm. uh is a a good thing but how long does the tape adhere to the the, those materials and yeah uh, uh I know there are a lot of good products available, but um, once they break down, you've got to consider, well, you know, what what, what happens then? Will it it still be uh, airtight or not? Mm. And I I guess when you're designing houses or buildings, if you can find the, the way to connect building materials together in a way that naturally sort of seals things in the right way or connects mit- mm. insulation with insulation or with the frame or whatever it is, without the reliance. I mean, when, when for instance, uh, Mastic came out, everybody sort of was using it everywhere, you know. was yeah, 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 like the answer to everything. You're like, <laughs> bad building techniques, Mastic, you know. And, of course, it breaks down after a while. And then you, you end up with leaking windows and sills and and roofs and everything because this has got quite a short term. Um, time frame yeah. for, before it sort of falls apart especially when it's subject to heat and cold of winter and summer and winter so mm. to rely on such such sort of synthetic materials is still a bad idea even when you're building sustainable buildings
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes I was talking to someone the other day who said um, that the the PVC windows when they were sort of rolled rolled out for, for sustainability purposes what they didn't do was install them properly so they got a you know nice more insulative window uh with loads of gaps around the outside which is probably worse than the the single pane uh windows that they replaced yes (laughs) and actually a net sort of loss in efficiency
3: exactly most air loss is through the gaps between construction not between not the actual construction Mm. itself even if it's single or you know Early double glazed units. I mean, it's 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 still always how how it connects around the edges. Yeah, you know? yeah. And if you look at traditional buildings, of course, the outer brick leaf tends to sort of project forward in front of the, uh, the window frames. Yeah, and the you know the, the vertical sliding sash mechanisms are well embedded in the in in the, in the building in in the construction. So as long as you can, uh, if you do a few things like that, then the amount of wind and rain that's going to get to the, those uh, joints is going to be reduced quite a bit.
0: Yeah. I and mean, there's, a, there's a sort of set distance back, isn't there, that uh, is optimal. Um, I seem to remember hearing once that there, maybe it's a bit of research that we did read it, that if you set the window back too far, then you create too much of a dead space and you get damp. Uh, on the, on the windows, but if you set it, don't set it back at all, then it's right kind of in the, in the wind zone. <laughs> and so all the air pushes through. So there's that sort of optimum. I think it's about 100 mil.
3: Yes. Um, yes. Well, that probably coincides a bit with the regulations that came after the Great Fire of London in, oh, really? in, the, in uh, 1666 as well, because it was a fire issue as well. Oh, really? Fire on the outside was leaping up from one, one, uh, floor to another mm. and, and the queen anne uh windows were right on the surface of the building so they, there was hardly any any depth at all right so there was easier for that to happen so after uh, the rebuilding after the fire they they set them back at the minimum of 100 millimeters so that, oh, that's so fascinating. that it just made that less likely mm. <laughs> so you were involved
0: in the princess foundation uh building craft apprenticeship is that right
3: Yes, I was. I led. I led one or two. I led, I led two, I think. Uh, one while I was working in the foundation, and one mm-hmm. later when I was working uh, in my practice. Yeah. The first one was at Pambury, and that was um, uh, an educational program where it brings together people who are training to be professionals in the built industry, built building, um, built environment industry. So that could be people wanting to be planners, policy makers. Uh, or or architects, and on the other hand, they they bring together people who are doing crafts skills. So people might be doing stonemasonry, some people might be doing timber framing, and they brought them together to plan out a project um, in Poundbury that would have to use all of their skills to, to and, and to communicate these two two groups of people that don't normally communicate in, yes. in a very easy way,
0: notoriously, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of. Uh yeah there's a, a notorious disconnect between the, the two and we you know the builders us will tend to go all those architects and you know wave their fists and i think it's probably the same the other way around isn't mm. it um yeah it's a I mean, it's a fantastic program i was uh well i think i'm registered as the the only earth builder they've ever had uh, on the princess <laughs> foundation uh, oh, right. <laughs> apprenticeship program yeah i mean it's it's a fascinating thing so there's the three the three week did, was that still the case when you you did it or where well, you did it?
3: Uh, I was involved. Yes, the first one in, in Poundbury was a shorter length of time. It was mm-hmm. um, uh, a summer school, right? So everybody was together on the site, looking at different uh, aspects of the of the geography, and then we had a workshop that uh, everybody came together to think through how it was going to be planned and designed. Um and that was the, yeah that that was a, a lot of drawing work mm-hmm. and some of the crafts guys found that quite difficult because a lot of them were very good at making timber joints and thinking through things in their head and then just building it yeah and the architects couldn't deal with that or the planners <laughs> they had to draw it first and get it right and get the dimensions correct yeah uh in order to sort of um uh, you know communicate or, or or understand what it was they were doing And, of course, on these projects, you then uh, get to the point where you have to have it signed off by somebody. Who signs it off often? Well, it's, it's the architect on one hand, but you also need the structural engineer. Yeah. And this is where you get into a little bit of conflict, because a traditional craftsman is somebody who's based his ideas on tradition on things being always having been done in a certain way for centuries yeah therefore why do you need some engineer to come and verify what he's done <laughs> which you know for like two or three hundred years has always worked perfectly yeah so there was absolute stand-up rows in some of the <laughs> workshops that we went to when we were dealing with the master craftsman and and walking out and slamming doors I mean it was oh, wow. it was bizarre just on a small project in, in Poundbridge it was really really <laughs> an eye-opener for me but um, there are people who, you know, they, they have this long tradition, and it's almost medieval, and it still kind of exists. Mm. And that, that that was a surprise. But um, equally, the engineers had to then figure out how they're going to do calculations on joints they've never seen before and yeah. timber sections that don't seem to, you know. In actual fact, most of the time... The, the whole thing was probably quite over-engineered in terms of the way the craftsman do, does it. Yeah. So it would, it would stand the hurricane, you know, it would be so well-founded and, you know, developed. So I don't think there was a worry, but he still had to perhaps run some calculations on a on a machine, you know, mm. on a computer to, to demonstrate to himself and his uh, professional indemnity insurance uh, providers <laughs> that, you know, he was doing his job, you
0: know. And I suppose the... Um... Yeah, you know, we look and, and sort of say, you know, people, you know, back in the past knew how to do the you know, timber framing and they knew the right size timbers and stuff. But then we only get to see the ones that have survived. So perhaps there were people building, you know, really sort of with sticks that they've just collapsed. And, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we do have that proven track record of, you know, these mm. buildings have stood for hundreds of years.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, you know, we know these timber sizes are, you know, adequate
3: yes and i I think also now when you when you when you overlay on that now the requirements for sort of uh insulation and Mm. heat loss and efficiencies in those ways it tends to have other aspects of the building that that will inevitably change in order to meet those targets so Mm. bits and pieces have to be adapted from the traditions to take account of that and um I think with Poundbury the one we did there there was a youth shelter just on the edge of uh, of of the settlement near near the oval uh, cricket ground right <laughs> uh just just far enough for the young people to not feel like their their parents are overlooking them too much but not too far away to get into like heavy drugs or something you know right. no, it was just like a, a a well sort of calibrated sort of position yeah. in in the, in the master plan um but uh, with that uh, the 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 ma- Predominantly, the design was of a of a historic and a traditional nature, so it it was mainly in that field. When we came a, a year or two later to do uh, a performance stage construct structure at the National Botanic Gardens of Wales, hmm. that was very different because somehow the guys who had been designing in, in the uh, workshop, um, the, the 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 ideas that took precedence were well, that came from the architects right uh somehow <clears throat> and the geometry that they came up with was not whilst looking traditional was not actually quite as traditional as it appeared right and trying to then my, my job as an architect was trying to sort of take these ideas and make them work mm. and it didn't really work from a sort of straightforward traditional uh, timber jointing framing point of view yeah and then of course the engineer came in because he saw that there was a bit of a conundrum and how we would develop that. And he started to say, well, what we could be looking at here is a cooperative structure. Now that's very different. Now cooperative structure is where every piece of timber within the construction has a role to play that's almost equal in terms of its structural capacity. Okay. With, with traditional timber frame buildings, it's much more what you call a hierarchical, mm-hmm. uh, organization of forces yeah so you get some really big big trusses that take huge amounts of the weight and that goes on to say some big piers that are positioned in certain places or like Mm -hmm. columns and then there's very very secondary structure that's much smaller and lighter and takes a lot less weight but that finds its way onto these 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 bigger structures so it's a hierarchy of sort of uh support coming down to like these huge columns that support mm. it at the bottom so uh so 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 it was, a, it was a it was a different way of thinking and it was it was a mind bender completely for the <laughs> poor old um, timber framer because he had to then think well he's got to this this incredible ring beam but it's going to have a lot of s- structural members coming down sort of uh, equally all the way around it that go up to a kind of spire at the top a square spire that the architect had had, right. had uh, the the younger uh, apprentice or um um graduate fellow had 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 sort of come up with and drawn very nicely so yeah. we all had a dickens of a job trying to sort <laughs> of work between these two very very different traditions one one being the sort of mainstream professional um uh, uh, consultancy of, of, an, of an engineering practice and the mm. other being the uh, the traditional timber framing uh, world and it somehow had to work and somehow it worked and it, he actually the, the engineer came up with a very sophisticated three two, three-dimensional uh, model to show how this cooperative structure actually right. should, would work but in the end it was it was built by craftsmen cutting these huge enormous uh, pieces of timber to make the ring beam and then all of the other structures that sort of piled up on top of it <laughs> so so i realized then in both of those projects there is quite a big gap and a very hard bridge to to jump between the two you either it, to make life simple you either go there's a full engineering route a so mm. mainstream engineering all on computer or you go fully into the craftsman it's traditions and, and stick with yeah. it So, I mean, I I think there is a case of bringing them together because for lots, lots of different reasons. But it just requires quite a lot of thought, and uh, and and I I think there's a lot of re re um, thinking going on in the building industry, or or, and ought to, in in order Mm. to make buildings much more sustainable for the 21st century. Yeah, Uh, learning from the past, but also learning the best things from things we've uh, discovered in the 20th century. Yeah. I um I was reading your blog this morning, uh,
0: and I was fascinated by the what was it the phrase? Uh, well, a hundred years ago we had fifty five building products, and now
3: what was it? You you estimate it? I think it's like a sort of a one hundred fifty five thousand or something 100. like it was. It was yeah, it so, was, so it was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and so well, I mean, it sort of goes into what we were just saying that you know if if one of those materials was is wood then you know you've got all this knowledge of what's succeeded and what's failed and so you've got that known known entity whereas now because we don't have proven track records of 155,000 uh uh you know different materials we just have to model them and calculate them and make sure yeah we're we're being safe and
3: Well, it's very difficult, really. If a fairly new product is on the market, it's not got a track record. Mm. So it will give you a warranty of maybe 5, 10 years or something like this. But who knows? I mean, it's a a little bit test it and see, really. And and I think that's why... Or
0: over-engineer it and
3: see. Over-engineer it, yeah. Or take out sort of um, expensive... um, Warranties that cover cover mm. cover you and the clients and everybody else on top of your professional indemnity, so the whole thing becomes a bit of a kind of insurance uh, uh, nightmare, mm. <laughs> adding to the costs. And uh, you know,
0: um, so he's he's sort of come up a few times. Uh, the Prince of Wales is um, he's obviously the the is he the founder of the Prince's Foundation or the the is it the patron or the
3: what do you... have uh, Yes, he's a patron of about, uh, well, I think it was around about 20 charities. Mm. I don't know if it's the same now, but uh, I was there a few years back. But uh, he founded pretty much all of them one way or the other. Mm. Um, obviously, the Duchy of Cornwall has gone on for centuries since the, uh, yeah. the Black Prince in I don't know, 1347 or whenever it was. But... Um, yeah he started something like a drawing school for architects in the early days and mm-hmm. to try and sort of get architects to actually draw with pencils and right. observe and look at things and uh, appreciate traditional architecture once more. So a lot of people went through that school. It was quite influential in many ways. I mean a lot of people I know now had, had some connection with that right I, I didn't do that, but um I came to it a lot later when i when I joined the the, the Prince's Foundation for the built environment when i joined and now and now it's become for um for building communities. Mm-hmm. So the emphasis has slightly changed but um yeah no so he he is the, the the patron of the Princess Foundation who then acts as a kind of educational explainer for what what's happening uh in Poundbury and uh, other aspects of the 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 principles that go behind uh, what the Prince of Wales is uh, trying to promote. And he's mm-hmm.
0: It's interesting that he, uh, he's he been championing organic food for, well, what's like, since the 80s or something, isn't it? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people initially sort of wrote it off as a bit of a sort of nonsense fad. Mm. And now suddenly, yeah, you know, we've all caught up and gone like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. And it seems like, you know, he's actually really quite forward thinking in terms of yeah, you know, the sustainability, the community stuff. And that, you know, again, we're, we're starting to catch up or, you know, modern thinking is starting to catch up with, with his sort of premonitions or mm. premonitions, probably not mm. the right word, but mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, he's, 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 I think he's learnt on the job, really. I mean, if you're, right. if you're a big landowner, effectively, mm. and you, you, you're doing a bit of farming anyway, and you're building buildings and you're doing all kinds of other things, uh, you know, developing things, you you, you have a quite a, lot, a big perspective of, of the whole um, environment and everything that sort of goes to, to, to operate and make it work. Mm. And of, of, obviously, uh, as a Prince of Wales position, you're travelling all over the world as well. Getting to see And a lot you're of... seeing an awful lot of things. And he's probably shaken more hands with more people than just about <laughs> anyone in the world, I think, by a mile. I'm sure about that. <laughs> Except maybe the Queen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, you know, obviously some of that rubs off on you mm. and you think to yourself when you come back to Dorset or Dorchester or Cornwall or wherever, you think, well, maybe we can put some of these thoughts in, 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 into practice rather than just sort of just treating them as some nice sort of touristic kind of, experience you yeah. know and and he's done that in an amazing way i mean it's it's incredible how he has uh collated knowledge and information and then brought it together in 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 a project wh- which then you know for better or worse in different ways as you're learning on the job you you you, you apply these things and and lo and behold it becomes like a Uh, a leading sort of influencer in the whole of the way in which master planning and the built environment Mm. is now organized. And a lot of people would still um, deny that position, probably a lot of architects because of the uh, reliance on traditional architecture as the sort of principle behind building a, a settlement in the 21st century. But uh, there's no denying it, it is, it is uh, I think, by my mile, must be one of the most uh, successful um, sustainable communities in the UK because of the way in which a mixed uses has been integrated from the beginning. Mm. So pubs, you know, the first pub, I think, in a housing estate in England for a long time. Right. Uh, the Poet Laureate. And a village hall that was planned. And Leon Creer... Had sort of worked out what all the mixed uses were, would be from the very beginning mm. and he put them all in the master plan so the housing kind of had to fit in between all the, the mixed uses rather than like just having a, a mass house builder just produce lots of building products all over the shop mm. with no differentiation or uh, you know relief uh, and so this was this was very forward thinking and now i think at, th- at this point i'm not sure exactly of the numbers but there's about two thousand people living there, and there's about about two thousand jobs. It might be a little bit more right. or less. Now, that's that's remarkable to have a a, a community that can function. And the, the pub the, when I was doing a. I was doing a film there once with uh, Dan Cruickshank. I managed to somehow persuade him to uh, walk around uh, talking while we went and we filmed him. And uh, it was amazing. And the the pub owner said that if you want to do business, then come and live in Poundbury because it's it's just so many people doing so many things. And there's little business centers and there's medical practitioners and... and, um, There's uh, Dorset cereals and there's a Mm. chocolate factory and there's a sort of, um, there's a college of building. I mean, it's all in in this place. And to do that, you had to really think differently Mm. because of the way we've segregated ideas in the 20th century and zoned everything, everything's yeah. in a separate zone. You never, never bring things together in this way. It's far too complicated for average professionals to get their heads around in the, the way that they've been educated, including architects. Mm. So it is a phenomenally advanced thinking uh, uh, place. And uh, I, I, I would take people, there was about 30,000 people Every year, and it may be more or less now, I don't know, but uh, that used to come and see Poundbury. Just a visit. Just a visit from around the world. And not, not, not all me, but the Duchy of Cornwall took a lot of people around as well. Mm. And so did the Princess Foundation. And, um, I was surprised often to, to have people like, you know, the, the, the town, the city of Malmo, you know, in Sweden, right. coming to see what's going on in Poundbury. I'm thinking they're supposed to be like the kind of really cool edge of like sustainability in the world and everybody yeah. goes there. But they were coming to Poundbury and um, almost like bypassing any sort of architectural sort of profession in this country to do something that they would never do. Mm. And that's to learn from a, for a successful place. And what they said was they've done all the sort of smart, super uh projects on the waterfront all very glamorous yeah but like 90 percent of the country is still ordinary communities and we ha- we've got to we've got to address them. we don't really know how to do it so <laughs> we've got to find some uh that has kind of you know set the set the set the um the standard so they they, they came to panbury so that, so things like that and um you know i had sort of stand-up sort of um <laughs> arguments in some cases with like, a bunch of like dutch architects came to visit Foundry <laughs> right. once and uh, they were intent on sort of pulling it down you know and myself and a colleague uh L- L- lucian S- Stel, from uh, who's now working for the uh, university of notre dame in, in america right but he and i were just sat at the front you know being being, being having all these questions shot at us and we were just defending it to the hill you know it was a, it was quite funny in 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 brownswood hall you know this this great um community center right in the center of Banbury.
0: yeah my before i'd i'd been and before i knew too much about it um i'd heard mixed reviews of people that didn't really get it and i think someone called it a toy town uh yeah didn't really see the the benefit of of the uh you know, why why it was different but i mean certainly talking to you it seems like it's a a, a, a success is, would, <laughs> that be is it largely a success is it
3: oh i would uh, say you know holy? Uh, i, I mean, would say pretty wholly a success now you might not like some of the uh, expressions architecturally, and yeah. that's that's fair enough. I mean, um, it it is it is a little bit of a norm- an anomaly, really, when you see that we've had to go back so far in history to mm. to make something that sort of uh, sidestepped the kind of um, cul de sac we've got into with with modern development. Um, I mean, people are now sort of looking at the principles and they're trying to apply it in different ways, using different architectural forms and. Uh, More modern forms, and Mm -hmm. I think that's fair enough. The thing, the big thing, I think, is understanding the need for a language, yeah, a language of architecture. Now, uh, within a language, as as in Poundbury, there's a multitude of different uh, versions and, and variety. Yeah, and often when you're sort of coding or developing ideas for a place like this, you're 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 putting sort of uh, design codes in place to to create variety rather than to stymie <laughs> uh, to stymie variety uh, mm. to stop it because a lot of a lot of housing estates have got no no variety at all it's just constant sort of repetition of the same model more or less mm. now that's probably changing now um, so so yes but I mean you have to see Poundry as as a big experiment of it of its day and it's it's, it's, it's massive contribution uh, and there there are there are parts of sp- Poundbury I would say that you, you would probably say well they could have done better on this part of it in terms yeah. of the architectural layout and the the building configuration usually there's not a lot wrong with the, the master plan because it's been so well done it's it's sometimes the delivery of the building projects themselves and uh-huh. a, a little bit more of a loose handle on what, what should be happening or a little bit of lack of confidence in one kind of approach or another um, so, but uh, but overall, I would, I would say it, it, there's a lot to learn from it. So it's a dangerous thing to write it off because of the arch- you don't like the architecture, mm. and sometimes you can say this is this is a bit flowery or this is a bit over the top. You know, yeah. you, you can sort of it's a say why, why do we why do we have to sort of replicate um, classicism quite so strictly? Yeah. But on the other hand, when you see people's attempts to try and do it, and a lot of builders do a sort of what you could say a fake version of of tradition, yeah, people say Poundbury can be fake, but if you see what a builder 's version of tradition is you know, you know that it really is terrible, you know uh, so I mean I think you 've got to look really as, as authentically as you can at the building construction, if you look at the quality of the brickwork mm. and you look at the different forms of brick coursing that you can have, the variety. Uh, you look at the quality of the windows and how they're set back in the right way and, and the frames and the eaves. Um, there are still quite strong principles that need to be carried through, I think, in, in most developments. and uh, And maybe you don't put the classical... F- Bits on sometimes. I mean, I think, but you do need to consider. Well, how do we how do we get the detail mm. that that relate to ordinary people who just like to see detail? I mean, as you get closer to a classical building, your your appreciation of its uh, architectural significance changes. First of all, you're seeing a total classical design proportioning, which is quite a big scale. When I, you say sorry, when you say sorry. classical, what 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 does that mean? Well, it. it, it in England, uh, we've always had this classical tradition that goes back to, I don't know, 16th century when, um, or earlier. Um, Inigo Jones, who was a Welshman, by the way, mm-hmm. he, he, went, <laughs> he did the Grand Tour and came back and built a few classical buildings based on what he'd seen of uh, Palladio's work mm-hmm. in Italy. And that was a very simple form of, um, you know, pitch roof, square building, and a few palaces on the front. Yeah. And 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 it took off in this country. So classical, has got quite a long tradition here. Christopher Wren and, and all of those. It's, it's a harmonic proportioning yeah. uh, of big buildings, and often the columns are sort of sort of trying to adjust the scale of a building to the city scale. Mm-hmm. So you might have two or three floors behind the columns, right? Um, uh, and maybe on a small house, you just have the columns around the front door as you go in. But yeah. it's a, it's a way of adjusting scale. And a lot of modern buildings do not don't have that. They have this, this continuous sort of graph paper regularity that goes from the, the pavement to the to the roof. Yeah. No differentiation. No hierarchy. No 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 sort of change of scale. So as you get to it, it's the same as it was when you're like you know ten ten miles away. Mm-hmm. Nothing changes. It just gets bigger. Whereas a classical building, you start to appreciate different levels of detail as you walk closer and closer to the building. So yeah. there's a or not just classical, it could be, you know, a traditional barn or a, a traditional brick building, uh, vernacular buildings that don't mm-hmm. have any of the uh, that, that, those kind of frills, but have enough detail just to allow that human uh, appreciation at street level when you're walking by it and you say, wow, it's amazing stonework. I just really love that. It's just so cool, you know, rather than just like panels and panels of more glass and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cementitious kind of material. Great. Well, Noel, thank you very much
0: for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah. And um, yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?
1: Well then, Joe, what do you think of that? It's great. Um, Yeah, I'd heard bits and pieces about Pambury and uh, had always uh, liked the idea. So I think getting into it much more thoroughly, it was, uh, yeah, it was really great. I really enjoyed uh, hearing about uh, the kind of really in-depth design process that obviously went into it. Um, I I think it's uh, wonderful that there exists in England, in the modern day, uh, a town that's been built for people Mm. Uh, and that works for people. Yeah, the uh, human scale. not oh, yeah. the automobile scale. Absolutely. Uh, I just think that's a wonderful thing, and I now have to go and visit.
0: <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> I I've, I've never actually been, and anyone I've spoken to about it sort of went, "Oh, it's like a little joke town. It's sort of toy town. It's uh, yeah, it was a complete failure. All this sort of stuff." What? And I've seen the architecture now. I've looked it up. Yeah. And it is—I mean, it's a style which I don't think many people would necessarily kind of connect with,
1: right? <laughs>
0: it's, uh, yeah, it's very classical, as Noel said, and it's yeah, yeah, it's a certain aesthetic, which is obviously you know uh, Prince Charles's his thing, and um, yeah, uh, but in terms of what it's seemingly given to to sort of how housing developments and how settlements are planned. It seems like it was a massive success.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's the key to take, isn't it? And I think that Noel was trying to make that point that it doesn't really matter what the individual architecture looks like and that people were getting lost in the critique mm. of the aesthetic, which was the secondary point to it. The kind of main driving force seemed to be how can we, how can we place things? How do we order Uh, a uh, a civilization a kind of you know a a collection of buildings how do we do that in a way that is sympathetic and enjoyable um, and takes some of the guessing and the rules out of life because of the way you have to maneuver yourself through Mm. it I just thought that that was really that that to me is the essence of good design it's when things happen uh, unconsciously yeah you don't need a manual to say this is how you do it yeah and I think that's the thing that fascinated me yeah yeah, I particularly like the uh, the talk about the, the lane, the, the bringing mm. back the lane, some of the tree right in the middle of it so that there's no way traffic could go down it or reclaim it. Yeah. I just really like that, bringing, bringing nature in, acknowledging that that's something that we need, um, building it into the plan rather than as an afterthought. Or, yeah. Yeah, really good.
0: Nice. Well, is there anything else we wanted to talk about before we leave the good podcast people? I think so. Uh, oh, I want to say a massive thank you to Earth Building UK and Ireland. Oh, yes. Uh, for Clay Clayfest uh, last weekend. Yeah. weekend before. Uh, it was... So it was an event uh, showcasing the all the possibilities of clay-based uh, buildings. So that's cob and clay plasters and earth floors and all that kind of exciting stuff. Um, we went down with all but one of our students yeah. and, um, and everyone... Learned loads and loads and got hands on them practical and was making these shiny, shiny clay balls. Oh, the
1: Japanese, polished Japanese balls. Yes. Yeah, they looked great. They all came back polishing them. Yeah. And uh, Jodie made an amazing rammed earth arch.
0: Yeah. So that's Uh, our apprentice um, who had never done rammed earth before. And she went straight in at like master (laughs) level and did a a vault. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, very, very proud of her.
1: Yeah. Wow. That was great. Great experience for the guys. And, uh, yeah, really good job from Earth Building UK and Ireland. And uh, marvellously hosted by Cat. Uh, um, Centre uh, for Alternative Technology. Yeah, brilliant. Always always putting on really great events. Um, always lots to learn. So, mm. yeah, well done, everyone.
0: Yeah. So, uh, before we go, just the final thing is to say that if you're enjoying these podcasts, uh, do... Get on and subscribe if you're on iTunes. Hit the subscribe button. Uh, And if you're really loving it, give us a five-star review. Yeah, absolutely. Because it helps us be seen by more people. That's what we want. Um, Cool.
1: All right. See you next month. Bye. Bye.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.